Chapter Fourteen of An Exchange of Souls by Barry Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen. I have occasionally seen, when for my sins I have been taken to a music hall, a performance which is, I believe, intended to be amusing and funny, the impersonation of a woman by a man. It is a thing which always disgusts me. The more cleverly it is done, the more loathsome it is. If I happen to see that item on ahead in the program, I take care to be out of sight and sound of it. I do not know if this is a special peculiarity or weakness of my own, but it helped to add to the difficulty of what I had to do. I had been the friend of Myas, and I had been the friend of Alice Lade. Whatever was waiting for me behind the door of the laboratory had a claim upon me. I, plain, conventional, and unimaginative man, as Myas had described me, had by sheer force of circumstances been drawn into a very whirlpool of horror and morbidity. I had to go through the mud. Now that I had made up my mind to do it, I went through the thing pretty steadily. There was an electric light in my taxicab, and on my way to Durnford Place I read the evening paper assiduously. Whoever this creature was that had appealed to me in the undoubted handwriting of Daniel Myas, it was a person desperately in need of my help and advice. Help and advice cannot be given intelligently by the perturbed and terror-stricken. By the time that I had read the last advertisement of the latest hair restorer, I had brought myself, I think, to my normal frame of mind. At first I had some trouble with my key. The lock of the garden door had not perhaps been much used of late and had rusted. I began to think that I should have to go round to Knox Street, but at last the thing went back with a click and the door stood open. In a dark corner, from a mass of dusty laurels, a cat began to cry like a child. The place was very dark. The blinds were drawn down over the windows of the workroom, and only a faint glimmer of light shone behind them. I groped my way to the door and knocked, my usual brisk social knock. I had expected it, of course, and I think it should have had less effect upon me than it did. The voice which made me enter was deep and resonant. It was the voice of Daniel Myas. I knew it to be his voice, and yet I had seen his dead body as it lay in the coffin. I'm afraid that I hesitated for a second or two before I could bring myself to turn the handle of the door. The workroom was perhaps thirty-six feet in length. Near the door by which I had entered there was one electric light, heavily shaded. I could see rows of bottles and retorts, and stands of test-tubes. Books were scattered about. The further end of the workroom seemed, at first, to be in complete darkness. Then, as my eyes got accustomed, I could distinguish something moving. It came a very little nearer to me, and now I could distinguish a man's dressing-gown, with the sleeves turned back because the arms within were too short for it. The collar of the dressing-gown was turned up, and there was a veil over the face. 
Again the voice of Myas came out of the darkness. "'I know exactly what you're feeling, Compton. You needn't shake hands. I understand.' "'Nonsense,' I said, and, advancing, took in my own the small hand of Alice Lade. Through the veil I could distinguish dimly the face of Alice Lade, but through her eyes the eyes of Daniel Myas looked out. That was, perhaps, the extreme touch of terror. The eyes of the man looking from the woman's face. He thanked me for coming and motioned me to a leather-covered chair by the lamp. I notice that I have written the word he. It conveys the impression made on me. He himself sat at some distance from me in the dusk. "'My voice must have been a shock to you,' he said. "'You know, of course, that the organs of the voice are peculiarly susceptible of variation, and there my dominant personality has made a great change. I can still write in the handwriting of Alice. I made the experiment just before you came in. But I cannot speak with her voice. When I try to do it, I produce an absurd falsetto.' There are other changes that you may have noticed. The color of the hair seems to me darker, I said. I noticed it when you came into the light just now. Yes, the pigmentation of the hair and of the iris of the eye have changed. Do you see what this means? Sooner or later, with all my care and precautions, Mrs. Lade will be definitely certain that there is something wrong. I only dare to speak to her in whispers, making a pretense that my voice is affected by a cold. But that kind of thing cannot go on indefinitely. This afternoon she knocked at the door and asked me if I would not see Mrs. Porter. I have not the faintest notion who Mrs. Porter is. Probably Alice knew her very well. You see the trouble, don't you? As I get back some of the knowledge that Daniel Myas had, I lose some of the knowledge that Alice had. The first thing I want you to do for me, the very first thing, is to get Mrs. Lade to go away to America. I don't want to be cruel to her, I want to spare her. If she found out what is going on in me, I think it would kill her. Can you get her to go? I can. I said, I think I can promise that definitely. I saw her this afternoon, and she made a suggestion then as to your mental state, which I shall be able to make use of. He began to thank me, and broke off abruptly, and groaned as if in extreme physical pain. Then he took up a hypodermic syringe, and I saw the heavy sleeve of the dressing gown pulled back, and a small and feminine white arm. There was a moment's pause, and then he apologized for the interruption. "'Acute pain,' he said. "'It is part of the price I pay for what I have done. When the ego of a man becomes cognizable by the body of a woman, that body must suffer. If it should happen again, don't take any notice of it, please. When can you get Mrs. Lade to go?' The idea that occurred to me was to make her believe that your restoration to health absolutely depended upon her departure. If she can be made to believe that, she will go by the end of the week.
Can you get along until then?' "'Yes,' he said. "'I shall see her very little, and never in a room that is brightly lit. You will tell her not to prolong the last scene when she says good-bye to me. You can say that the strain might be dangerous for me.' "'Yes,' I said. I think you may consider all that as settled. But that is only the beginning of things. What are you going to do, my friend, after she has gone? What is to become of you?" I remained for over an hour longer, talking with this ghastly hermaphrodite. Part of the time he spoke in French, and I dare say he did this with intention. To me it was entirely convincing. Alice Lade may have known a few words of French, but certainly she could not have spoken it like that. Very few men in England could have spoken it quite like that. He had his scheme quite ready. His one aim was to bring Alice Lade back again. It was to that end, and to his own self-obliteration, that he now meant to devote himself. He believed though the belief seemed to me instinctive rather than reasonable, that if he could recover the knowledge he possessed before the experiment, this would become possible. As soon as Mrs. Lade had gone, he meant to get to some place where he was not known, and there to continue his work. I told him of my little cottage, standing all by itself on a hill in Gloucestershire. I was ready to put this cottage and my two servants there at his disposal. He accepted this with great gratitude. When I warned him that the place was desperately lonely, for the first time he laughed, a short grim laugh. He wanted nothing better than to be quite alone now. Mrs. Lade was to leave for Southampton on the Friday, and on the Saturday following he would go down to Gloucestershire. Then he told me something which, after all, did not greatly surprise me. He had made up his mind that he would no longer even try to pass as Alice Lade. He would not go down to Gloucestershire as a woman at all. Already, so he said, he felt it would be more easy to pass as a man than as a woman. As a man he would have more freedom and independence. He would be able to go about alone. He needed, of course, a complete outfit of man's clothes, and he had already taken all the measurements so that I might get these for him. They were to be ready-made, of course. There was no time for anything else. The power of attorney had also been prepared beforehand. He dealt with the necessary financial arrangements in a business-like, matter-of-fact way, and somehow every one of these prosaic touches seemed to add to the ghastliness of the whole thing. "'I am taking a great deal from you,' he said, "'and I am giving you a deal of trouble. I know that the sight of me must disgust and distress you. If it can possibly be managed, we will not meet again.' "'Don't say that,' I said. "'I am sorry for you and glad to be able to do anything for you. It does not amount to very much when all is said and done. And certainly I intend to see you again. I am not going to leave you to go mad in solitude. I admit that I find the whole thing horrible. You would not believe me if I said I did not. 
you have done something which is against nature. That is it, he said. That is exactly it, and nature punishes. I shook hands again with him when I left. I hope he did not feel how much I hated to do it. End of chapter 14